Okay, so renunciation. I'm kind of excited about this. This has been kind of a, I don't know what you call it. Not thorn in my side. That would more like be like karma, but <laughs> no pun intended. But renunciation is, oh, it's such a big part of the path. And it's hard to, I think it's hard for us to wrap our minds around really. Like, what is it? How does it work as lay folks? Um, so I want to do, this is probably going to be a couple parts. So probably tonight and next week. But I wanted to start by giving us a context, of course, for what this word means in the Dharma and why we have such a challenging time with it. And maybe, you know, talking a little bit about how we can let go of some of our attachment and aversion uh, that comes up when we talk about letting go of things in the world and how we can use it to our advantage rather than seeing it as a burden. Because it is so amazing once you begin to incorporate renunciation into your practice, when you really incorporate letting go, it it just opens up a whole new space for joy to come in, really, in my experience. Um, but, you know, the heart clings, the mind grasps, tanha, right? Clinging, craving. So, you know, we got to go easy on ourselves. But I think it'd be helpful just to give some context here for this concept, because it really is quite big in the Dharma. So, the term itself, renunciation, comes from the Pali word nikama. And the word, I think I love etymologies, as many of you know. And this word renunciation is, it has two parts to it, which I think is helpful to know. So it's associated with the phrase going forth. So this is the phrase that's associated with monastics when they take robes and they go forth from the world and to the Dharma, right? They decide that they want to live the spiritual life. As I like to say, they become professional spiritual practitioners, professional meditators, and they let go of the world completely and they move into spiritual practice as the center of their life experience, their lived experience. And so that's the going forth traditionally. So renunciation in part means that process where people take on the Dharma as the center point in their life. Now, traditionally, of course, it's going to be monks and nuns who are doing this. So this going forth, but we all go forth, right? We all go forth. All mindfulness practitioners in some way or another are going forth on this journey inward through the present moment into our direct experience. And we keep coming back to this experience. And so we're constantly going forth through this process of insight meditation and through the Eightfold Path. So it applies to us directly as well. But in the Pali, it's also associated with the term longing or desire. So what's interesting about the word is that going forth means we're letting go of something, but we're actually opening up to something else. So that's my biggest emphasis. If there could be any take home in the next two Dharma talks, tonight's and next week, the big take home is that letting go always has a counterpart, which is receiving right? We're going to let go of one thing and we're going to trade up for a higher version of happiness. So the monks and nuns, the, the word renunciation also refers to the pleasures that come from the spiritual practice. So we let go of the world in a particular way and we turn the other direction and we welcome in the joy of spiritual practice and the pleasures of simple wisdom. So that's really what renunciation means. It's a turning away from one thing and embracing another, but not with a sense of aversion or negativity, but with a sense of welcoming, right? We want to welcome in the joy and the compassion and the wisdom. 
So we're letting go of one thing and trading up for something else. And it's embedded in the term itself. So going forth, this is the renunciation, the going forth. Now, another part of the term going forth refers to the fact that when we meditate, we let go of the craving, the version, and ignorance that's related to our suffering. So as mindfulness practitioners, we are committed to letting go of the unskillful habits and welcoming in and cultivating the skillful ones. That's also renunciation. That's part of the path. So letting go, this renunciate act, is both an act of choosing to let go of the negative in our lives and consciously welcoming in and cultivating the positive. That is the dual side of renunciation as a practice. Now, when you think of the Buddha's insight into happiness and suffering, as we know, and I know I'm a broken record with this, but I'm going to say it again because I think it's important. You know, the Buddha's insight has to do with the fact that we play a role in our suffering. And that's like the good news of the Dharma, that we actually play a role in our suffering. And simultaneously, of course, we play a role in the cultivation of our happiness. So because we play a role, that's the good news because we can change the role we play, which means we can cultivate compassion. We can cultivate joy. We can become more loving. Our minds can become more concentrated. We can become more stable emotionally. We can have more open hearts. And we play a role in that. We have a say in what happens in our heart and mind. The qualities of our heart and mind are malleable, right? And that is the wonderful news about the Buddha's insight. So the choice to let go is a choice to self-create. The choice to let go is to let go of the unconscious habit patterns, to let go of the voices from our childhood, let go of the voices of trauma and despair, let go of the angst that we have as human beings, and we're letting go of all of that and we're creating a self that can stand in the world in a space of open-heartedness and compassion and gladliness, right? The sense of gladdening the heart and mind. So this is really an act. Renunciation is an act of self-creation and self-exploration. And so we should always look at it in those terms, even though it sounds a little heavy, at least in my mind, it always sounds heavy, renunciation. So that's, re that's renunciation in its truest form in the Dharma. And I know in my experience, the struggles I had with the term whenever it was used in a Dharma talk or a book or any type of Dharma teaching is I, I often, at least initially in my practice, misunderstood what was being asked of me. Like, what is the request? What is the divine request of renunciation? What are we really being asked to do? Now, some of our misunderstanding, of course, comes from our inheritance with the vocabulary. So if you look renunciation up in the dictionary, these are the words that come up. And I'm going to say these words, and I want you to bring some awareness to your heart or your body and watch how these words land for you, right? Watch how these words land in awareness. So in the English dictionary, or the online dictionary, renounce means to relinquish, reject, disown, sacrifice, give something up, or lose something. Relinquish, reject, disown, sacrifice, give up, or lose something. 
So I don't know about you, but like I bristle when I hear that stuff, right? So if you're a Dharma teacher and you're like, hey, Gregory, let's do some renunciation. That's what I think it means. I'm like, hell no. I I want a different spiritual path. Like that's not for me. So in my experience, renunciation has like a Christian religious overtone. And so I have this bristle when I hear, oh, renunciation. It's not like you're inviting me to a movie or something, right? It doesn't have that welcoming sense. So I would invite you when you hear the word to remember that you have a cultural inheritance with this terminology that's going to probably trigger a religious connotation or something that's negative. And so watch for that when you're studying the Dharma, because everyone's going to have their own association. But in general, we have a cultural inheritance around the term to renounce. Another thing that's really important, and this was some discovery I think I made just in my meditation practice, is that, you know, as children, when we're asked to give up something pleasurable, our connotation of that is that we've done something bad. It's a punishment. So I don't know about you all, but like when I did something bad, when I was a kid, something was given up, right? Like I was grounded or I couldn't play with a toy or if I was ever giving up pleasure unwillingly, it's because I had done something wrong and there was an authority figure telling me I had to give it up, right? I can't stay out and play because now it's dark or something, right? I can't go over to my friend's house. So as kids, when pleasure is being taken away or we're asked to give up something, that we enjoy, usually we've done something wrong or something else is coming down the pipe that's not very fun. So that's another aspect of this is that in the Dharma, we're asked to strategically wean from pleasures that we think or are taught are the ultimate happiness, right? We're told to lay off on the sense pleasures and increase the spiritual pleasures. And I think the inner child in us is like, we're being grounded by Buddha or something, you know? And so take note of your own heart and mind whenever you're going through any kind of process of basically conscious abstinence, so to speak, a conscious giving up of a particular pleasure in the context of your meditation practice. Take note of that inner child that's saying, I'd rather not give this up. Thank you very much. Take note of that in your practice because that's helped me a lot to notice which part of myself is saying, no, I would rather not do this. Another aspect of this that I think is a misunderstanding, again, comes from assuming that when we're asked to let go of something, that the thing we're letting go of, the actual habit or mind state or activity, is somehow bad or evil or negative in some way. And like, You know, I grew up in a household that was like mixed religiously. So my mom is Jewish and my dad is Catholic. And so I have all kinds of different, I have all kinds of different baggage from my religious upbringing. And I went to a Christian high school. So you can throw that in the mix as well and figure out the the strangeness of that. So what I know is that when, from a Christian overlay, when someone says, hey, you need to give up some kind of pleasure, we have this like misconception that, There's this evil in it, that it's bad, that we're dirty in some way, or that we've erred in some way. And what's interesting, in in the Dharma, the Buddha looks at pleasure in a different way. It's not that these pleasures are bad in and of themselves. We haven't done anything wrong. It's not a punishment. It's that we're looking at a higher happiness. And so I wanted to keep that in mind as well, because I know from my own experience, there is this sense that 
I'm giving this up because it's bad. And that's really unhelpful, I found, in being able to practice renunciation with any skillfulness in the Dharma. If you see it as an act of bad, it's going to be tough to follow through. Another part of this, because we're not monastics, right? Because we're lay folk, sometimes we forget that the Dharma is a process. It's a life path. And so as lay folk, it's about strategically practicing periods of time where we let go of things, but we're not being asked to just let them go completely, right? It's supposed to be a process of self-exploration. So for example, one of the things I'm planning on doing, or I keep telling myself I'm going to plan on doing, is reducing some of my social media kind of interaction. I'm not a big social media person, but of late I've been on it a lot, and I can feel the compulsive need to like check my email and to check the Twitter feed and to look at the news. And I can tell that it's it's compulsive. It's like I'm bored and so I check to see what's going on in the news or I check the election stats or something. Now, from a mindfulness practitioner's point of view, I can say, okay, as an act of renunciation, I'm gonna set two weeks aside and I'm gonna make a commitment to cut back on my social media, right? That would be a real skillful way to do renunciation. But oftentimes what we say is, I'm just going to give that up. And the thought of giving up things for long periods of time or to give things up completely, you know, it's like kind of when you say you're going to give up sugar, (laughs) like maybe some of you have been successful at this. I certainly haven't. Um, I've come to know that I have to give up sugar in strategically placed times in my life and for particular periods of time. Like if I'm going to do a fast from sugar, I can't just say, oh, I'm not going to eat sugar in 2021. That's never going to work, right? But I can say I'm going to cut back strategically and be mindful of the craving, be mindful of the desire, be mindful of the compulsion. That I can do. And so remember that we're not monastics. We're not taking these solid vows the way monastics have to do about giving up big things in the world. That being said, practicing strategic renunciation in our practice by letting go of things, whether it's a habit or something compulsive that we do or some, let's say we say, uh, there's this pet peeve I have in the world. I'll give you an example um, of something I would like to give up in 2021, an act of renunciation. And I've, I've mentioned this before. So, you know, my cat's getting older and he's got a lot of behaviors now that rub me the wrong way that weren't there before. And I would like his older years to be met with a graciousness and an ease. I would like to show up to him with some patience and with some love because I feel like that's most appropriate. So what I would like to give up is feeling annoyed by that, right? I want to step to my cat with a sense of like, look, I know you're getting old and you're whining and I'm going to accept that. So that would be renunciation where I choose to give up being annoyed by something. I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to show up differently in this way. That would be an act of renunciation, a conscious letting go of a habit or a way of being or an emotional state. And so when we look at it like that, like a process of betterment, it's a little bit easier to swallow, right? It doesn't become such a weird process. It becomes something that's self-exploration, that's growth and depth. So that's a way of looking at it, right? The thing isn't bad. We're not punishing ourselves. And we can choose to do something in pieces or parts or temporarily and really see 
what the compulsion is underneath, right? The compulsion. So that's how we use it skillfully. That's how we use it skillfully in the Dharma. Now, another aspect of this that, again, I think is an inheritance when it comes to renunciation is that in the West, or maybe I should say at least North America, um, but in the West, in North American culture, we have this inherited idea of what freedom is. And it's embedded, I think, in our economic system, and I think it's embedded in a larger social system. But we have this idea in, in North America, at least, that uh, we are individuals, we are these individual selves, and freedom means no boundaries, no rules, no restrictions, right? And so there's this sense of like, I can be free if I don't have to answer to anybody. I can be free if I could do what I want, when I want, say what I want. And in general, the spirit of that kind of freedom is admirable. But practically speaking, there's a shadow side, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. So we inherit this idea that freedom means no rules, no restrictions, right? Unbounded. We also have this idea that freedom means I can consume what I want, when I want, as much as I want, right? That we have a freedom to consume, consume experiences, consume or um, like, like money, items, whatever the case may be. We have this consumption mindset in the West that is related to our sense of freedom, that we have the freedom to be entrepreneurs, we have the freedom to move up in the world. We have this sense that we can be free and it's tied to consumption. I can consume more, I can consume as much as I want and nobody can tell me the wiser. There is in a sense our, in our culture a glorification of excess. And this goes on, this is kind of a little obvious, but we have a glorification of excess, right? We're consuming a lot. We're consuming a lot. And obviously with climate change, what's become most noteworthy is that we're consuming too much too quickly without boundaries, right? This freedom to just consume, this freedom to be in this way has a shadow side. The challenge with this idea of freedom when you start to practice the Dharma is the Dharma looks at freedom in a completely different way. The Dharma says, we're going to put down some boundaries. We're going to hold some precepts. We're going to set out some rules and we're going to try to live up to those rules, right? We're going to try to live up to the aspiration of being mindful. We're going to let go of some things and we're going to trade up for something higher. And it's really the opposite of how we're trained in the West to be free, right? Freedom in the West is not adding restrictions, it's letting go of all restrictions. But in Buddhist psychology, we want to impose some restrictions to get a higher freedom at the end of the path. And so we all know this, that when the mind is left to its own devices, when the heart is left to its own devices, it runs around like crazy, craving, aversion, craving, aversion, fight, flight, fight, flight. The mind, without any restrictions, eats itself alive, right? It's, it's crazy in there. And when you bring mindfulness inside and you see a mind that has no boundaries, and has no restrictions, it's quite unpleasant. You can't control it. You don't have any autonomy. So when we look inside and we see what freedom looks like, it's craziness in there. It's not freedom. It's chaos, right? And so when we don't aspire to have some boundaries, some restrictions, some renunciation, the mind runs on autopilot. 
Now, this is from a Buddhist psychological perspective. It runs on autopilot unless we get in there and start reining it in. So in the Dharma, freedom begins by setting limits. Where in the West, freedom by, begins by breaking them down. Very different attitude and awareness towards what we call freedom. In the Dharma, we let go to get freedom back. We let go of something to get freedom in return. Right? This is kind of how the practice works. And I'll show you um, in regards to meditation in a minute or two on, on how obvious this is within insight meditation. But for now, just keep in mind that we have these inherited cultural overlays with this idea of letting go. And oftentimes we don't even know that we have it until we find ourselves pushing back against it, right? And it's this unconscious thing that we do and you'll notice it in your practice. I'm gonna give this quote here. This is from the Dhammapada. And this is what the Buddha says about letting go. And he says, if by forsaking a limited ease, a person would see an abundance of ease, then the enlightened person would forsake that limited ease for the sake of the abundance. That enlightened person would forsake the limited ease for the sake of abundance. So again, you're letting go of something that's not necessarily bad. It's a type of happiness, but for a higher, more abundant happiness, right? We put restrictions on ourselves to get something in return, not as punishment, not as punishment. That's the big thing here, not as punishment. I came up with a analogy here that has helped with me over the years to understand how the Eightfold Path and how insight meditation is really a sacred act of letting go, a sacred act of renunciation. And the analogy I use is athletes, professional athletes. Came up with this a couple years ago when I was trying to reconcile this for myself. If you think of an athlete like an Olympic athlete or professional athlete. Someone who's a professional athlete has decided in their life that playing this game and winning this game and getting to the highest level of this game is the priority in their life, right? It's a life commitment. They're going to be a professional athlete and their life is going to be geared towards the training of playing this game and playing it at this high level. And the goal there's this winning at the end, right? There's this thing, the Super Bowl or NBA championships or whatever else there is, World Series, that just happened. So we've got these professional athletes who make this choice in their life to put something above all else and train their heart and mind to pursue this skill, to pursue this skill. And in order to do that, in order to do that, in order to train and to live that life, they have to let go of some stuff. They have to let go of some things. They may give up time with friends and family, right? They may have to give up some time with certain hobbies because they've got to be training, playing on the road, traveling. So they give up things that aren't bad. It's just they've created a higher priority for themselves on what it means for them to be something in the world. So they it's not like they don't love their family and their friends. It doesn't like, if I'm a professional athlete, I might have to give up the aspiration of being a professional guitar player because that would take its own commitment. Instead, I'm going to have to play less guitar and shoot more baskets, right? This is very similar to the Dharma. 
when we go forth in the Dharma, we're making a commitment to live mindfully with this aspiration of freedom from suffering and freedom for all beings. So in the Dharma, we train the heart and mind for this higher aspiration, this higher priority of spiritual experience, this higher priority of inner nourishment. And in order to do that, we've got to let a few things go, or at least reduce or minimize other things in order to make time for the practice. So it's really similar. Another aspect of this, if I'm an athlete, I'm going to have to eat a certain way. I might have to give up intoxicants, or at least reduce intoxicants until I'm celebrating because I win a game or something. So I know not all athletes are really that physically healthy, but they are certainly conditioned, right? Certainly conditioned. So they have to look at their mind and body and say, I'm going to eat a certain way. I'm going to be healthy in a particular way because I want to perform or be a particular way. Very similar to the Dharma. We have our precepts. We're asked to take an ethical stance in life. We're asked to show up in selfless service to others. We're asked to be more patient and more loving and kind. That's not always easy. I mean, I'll be the first to admit there's plenty of days of the week. I just don't want to be kind. I'm just tired. You know, like I just don't, I'm just not up for it. Because kindness takes energy and effort, right? It takes discipline and aspiration. There's plenty of days where I just want to be like, the Dharma can like screw off. I just want to, I don't want to have to do it. Because it takes a lot of training, a lot of commitment to, to really be in the Dharma and to be, have this higher aspiration for joy and freedom. It doesn't just come by itself. We all know how hard it is to meditate regularly. And some days we just don't want to do it. So like an athlete, we have this goal We agree to train and we make the sacrifices that are necessary and we try to create a balance in our life where we're pursuing this higher aspiration, but we still as lay people have friends and family and mortgages and school loans and kiddos to raise and things like this. But we have a high priority of the Dharma itself and we renounce in order to make that happen. We let go of certain things. Again, I wanted to emphasize that as an athlete, An athlete may give up the goal of being a guitar player or maybe doing some travel because they're busy training. The Dharma is the same way. The things we give up in the Dharma, we're not giving up because they're bad or that they're unworthy goals. We've just prioritized the goal of freedom. We've just prioritized the goal of love. We've prioritized the goal of mindfulness. So we're not, again, condemning ourselves or punishing. We just decided that we're going to try to get to the World Series of Meditation, right? Awakening, the end goal. We've just set our sights on that. And we live a life in alignment with that aspiration. And so what we see here is that renunciation, letting go, entails discipline. It entails setting some limits for ourselves. It entails setting healthy boundaries right? We might need to tell our kiddos, mom or dad, 20 minutes meditation. You're going to have to go watch Netflix or go play over here or do something else, right? We create a healthy boundary. We let go of something so we can reground ourselves in mindfulness. We might say to our partner who wants us to say, watch TV with them or go on a walk or do something. And we might in that moment say, this is my meditation time. I got to go get my sit in. This happens at my house, right? Molly and I, one of us might need to sit and the other person is inviting them to do something, but we have this higher aspiration of making sure we sit every day. So one of us is going to be sitting 
and the other person might be doing something else alone and we might want to be with that person. That's the renunciation. It's for a higher purpose that we both mutually support. So in your life, there's going to be times where there's going to be this letting go in the Dharma. But again, keep in mind, the letting go is always for a higher aspiration of joy and for freedom. So again, discipline, limits, and boundaries. Again, those things can make us bristle. But in this case, like the athlete, you set all of those boundaries down and what do you get? You get a life in the joy of your pursuit, which in this case is wisdom and compassion. When I was in high school, I just thought of this. When I was in high school, one of my uh, high school friends was a swimmer. They thought at the time that he was going to be sort of an Olympic kind of person. Uh, he was already really good at the time. And he would train like two to three hours every day before school. So by the time we all got to school, he had already been swimming for several hours every day. And I remember he used to always, he always used to say like how much he enjoyed doing it. And he was always tired. He was always sore too. Like I would like, you know, like you're rowdy and you like kind of push on your friend and he'd always be like, ow, like I had to swim this morning for like three hours. Like, don't touch me. So I just remember his commitment in that we were all living this life, but he had this higher priority that I at the time thought was crazy. I'm like, who does that in the morning? And I understood that he liked it, but to me that just seemed way over the top. But for him, higher aspiration, higher aspiration. I can give you another one last example here, just in my own life. Meditation from the very beginning has always been a priority for me because the impact that my very first meditation experience had was just so transformative, right? It was so transformative and I just couldn't get enough of meditation. And then once I realized that consistent meditation practice really gave me a sense of ease throughout the day. And when I started realizing that when I skipped meditations, I could tell that I was a little less, a little more irritated, wasn't as patient with people, was a little bit more emotionally fatigued. And when I started to realize that by increasing my meditation, it had a huge impact in my relationships and in the way I walked in the world. Like at work, work was so much easier. Like I've been a social worker for too long now, um, decades now. And one of the things throughout my, I've been at a bunch of social work agencies doing a lot of different types of social work. But one thing that always comes up is people always used to tell me, wow, you have so much equanimity in crisis. Like how do you maintain so much calm under so much duress? And people always used to say, oh yeah, go to Gregory, he'll be calm. And I always used to tell people, I sit for an hour every morning before I come to work. It's not I don't have any special skill. Like it's the meditation. The meditation allows me to be equanimous in a very intense situation. And so once I realized that, I was willing to give up the extra TV and the extra this and the extra that because it just made my life so much better. Did I want to sit for an hour every day before work? No. There were times when I was up at 5 a.m. every day hitting the cushion before I got on a bus to go to work or go to work drive. And no, I didn't always want to do it, but the renunciation produced a sense of ease on the other side that I remembered was worth the time and energy. And another example in my own life as a meditator in the Dharma, I mean, I've done dozens and dozens of retreats over the years. And so, you know, in retrospect, I could have gone on vacation, right? I could have like, I had to save up work days 
when I was working in social work before I was a therapist, I would have to save up and like covet my vacation days. And I would be like, okay, I've got seven days. I can go on a seven day meditation retreat. But the problem with that is that meant I couldn't go on vacation, vacation. I couldn't go take a trip somewhere with friends or family or something. And for years, my priority was the meditation. And I have no regrets about the fact that I've done probably 15 10-day retreats, which means I did not do 15 vacations in my life. It was just a priority. It was a, it was a renunciation that I decided because every time I went on a retreat, I felt so like cleansed and so excited and so nourished and like my baggage would be less and it was just so wonderful. I was willing to make the sacrifice. But it doesn't mean that there weren't times where I thought to myself, oh man, like I can't believe I just did 10 days in retreat when I could have gone to Hawaii or something. Like I should have done something different. So you have to have balance with renunciation, but keep in mind that it's always for a higher good. That really is what this is. If you're ever doing it and there's a sense of punishment or a sense of self-deprecation or anything like that, reorient to a more skillful view, right? Keep an eye on how you engage in the letting go process of the Dharma. Yeah, I'll say one last thing, and then next week we'll we'll do the second part of this, which is going to be going through all of the parts of like the different meditative practices and how renunciation works. We'll talk about loving kindness. We'll talk about precepts. We'll talk about the art of giving up control and how much more sturdy the heart and mind are when you do that. But I wanted to just remind you of this part of it. Every time we sit on the meditation cushion and we intend to be mindful, we are renouncing. We're renouncing distraction. We're renouncing the clutter of the mind. We're not allowing the mind to wander, right? We're saying, you know what? I'm going to put a boundary here. You're going to be aware of breathing. That is a limit. And the wandering mind is like, tries to break free from the limit. But we all know that if you can hold that limit long enough, oh man, that feeling of presence is so gratifying, right? When the wandering mind settles down because we put a limit on it, because we've taken part in renunciation, so joyful, so relaxing, so worth giving up the fantasy about the checklist, so worth not rolling in the past, right? So keep in mind, and we'll talk about this much more next week, every time you intend to be mindful, you're giving up mindlessness. You're saying, I'm not going to be mindless. I'm not going to be on autopilot. I am going to be intentional, awake and aware in this moment. And that is a boundary that you've put down. You've put down this rule, I'm not going to wander. And there's joy in that. The boundary creates an opportunity for joy. When you narrow your focus into the present moment, what becomes awake and aware in consciousness is the details of life, right? As we become mindful of the present moment, all these details that we couldn't see come to fruition, all the emotions we can sense, right? All the body sensations. We can't do that if we don't put limits on the mind. If we just let the mind wander all over the place, no detail, no clarity. So just keep that in mind. The meditation itself is renunciation. We're already doing it. It's just a matter of befriending the practice, befriending the practice. Okay, enough of me, <laughs> enough of me. All right, 
lovely to see you. Let's plop again. I feel like the world needs love. Let's uh, let's give another round of love here. Take a long, slow, deep breath in, back into the body. Deep breath, relaxing back into presence, feeling the body in its totality. Really feel yourself in this moment, moment sitting, seated. And let's remember, we come together for our own well-being. We donate our hearts and minds to the group sit, to the group process and sangha, share with each other what's working, share our challenges, our successes. And we certainly do this with the aspiration of joy and compassion, liberation, living to our full potential, And of course, there is the loftiest aspiration of the liberation of all beings. Always remembering that we practice for ourselves, but we practice with the highest aspiration to liberate all beings. Coming up to some really stressful times, winter with COVID, the election right on our heels. Let us make a wish for the world in light of all this. Let's hold the world close to our heart. Let's hold the world close to our heart. May all beings feel safe and secure. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings be free from danger, worry, and concern. May all beings be cared for. May we all be well, be safe, be healthy. May we all get the health care we need. May we get the health care we need. And as we move to close, bring a wish close to your heart for the world. If you could wish anything for the world, what would it be in this moment? And wish that with all your heart. Wish that with all your heart. May all beings be free. May all beings be free.
Thank you, my friends, for sharing your practice with me tonight. We'll keep going next week. Talk about some tips and tricks. Be well, be safe, be safe more than anything, be safe.